Welcome to another episode of IBSC Exploring Boys Education, a regular podcast in which we engage with the ideas that are shaping the landscape of boys education. I'm Bruce Collins, IBSC Director of Member Engagement, and it's a real privilege to be your host. Before we launch into part two of the conversation on reaching, teaching and succeeding with boys of colour, I'd like to acknowledge the global challenge presented by COVID-19 and that all of our member schools have been impacted by this pandemic. Many of you listening to this episode have had to navigate a new normal and have had to adapt to engaging with your boys in new and innovative ways. I'd like to remind you of our IBSC coronavirus listserv, which launched recently. During this time, when many school campuses remain closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we invite all IBSC members to engage with each other to share ideas, compassion and friendship in this unprecedented era. It's one small way we can stay together and support each other across the distance. Even those of us united by geography can feel alone as we shelter in place. Working remotely is a brand new experience for many educators. Take this opportunity to let colleagues know what's working at your school or ask for tips on how others are handling similar challenges. And if you have a happy story to tell the community, so much the better. Thank you for all you do to support boys and each other worldwide. In a recent conversation I had with Tom Batty, our board chair and principal of Scotch College in Melbourne, he shared some words of comfort and encouragement at this time. We're in challenging times and there will be some things in common that we're all facing. Each school will have its own particular matters, but there is a, there's, a, there's a fair bit of this that we're all facing together. The IBSC obviously sends its love to, to all member schools Um, and their staff and their families. Please do head to the news section on www.theibsc.org or check your email for more information on how to subscribe to the IBSC Coronavirus Listserv. So while we are focusing our podcasts on all sorts of other important issues in boys' schools at the moment, we are mindful that it's not business as usual. We trust that our offerings will continue to support your work and encourage and inspire you. Now, back to the focus of this episode. In the first part of the conversation about reaching, teaching and succeeding with boys of colour, we were privileged to frame boys' schools' work with marginalised boys by connecting with Professor Randall Kennedy from Harvard Law School. If, If you go to school for four years and you get habituated to the minority kids being at the bottom of the class, that's not a good lesson that, you know, a school wants to be imparting to anyone. We were equally privileged to speak with Jack Pinnell and Dr. Joseph Nelson. This conversation helped frame many of the salient issues boys' schools need to consider when reaching, teaching and succeeding with boys of color. I think when people feel heard, and I'm seeing this happening across schools across the world, um, a whole different kind of institutional posture can come about if we just listen very carefully to our families and, and not listen like, I'm going to solve every problem you possibly have, as much as like, how do we solve this problem together? 
let curiosity rather than fear be the starting point through which you support your boys. Despite only being released recently, part one of this episode has sparked much discussion, and I'm really excited to be able to share some of your responses to the conversations we heard in the first part. For some of you, the stories shared resonate with your own experience. I loved uh, the insight of your guests and just some of the anecdotes that related a lot to my own experiences. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to hearing many, many more and learning a lot from these podcasts. Others of you have felt challenged to reflect on your own classroom spaces. This idea of boys of color probably shedding a part of themselves as they walk through my classroom doors and the struggle that ensues as a result really struck me because I teach elementary school and I think that this is going on with the boys in my classroom, but they don't quite have the language to understand what's happening. So I think as a teacher, it's very important for me to know that that could be the case for them and to uh, just be more aware of, of the way that that could be affecting them. We'll share more of your WhatsApp voice note responses later in the episode. The focus of this episode, part two of Reaching, Teaching and Succeeding with Boys of Colour, is to take the conversation global. We start in New Zealand by talking with Torti West from Hamilton Boys High School and Johnny Waititi from Westlake Boys High School. Their work with marginalised boys will help all of us frame the work we need to do in our own contexts. The historical context in New Zealand has certainly created some challenges with regards to reaching, teaching and succeeding with Maori boys. Toti and then Johnny explain. The spectrum of people who closely identify as Maori and then um, are sort of in an identity crisis with uh, Maori culture is, is, is far and wide. And so how do you um, reach um, uh, all those um, that, that spectrum of people with, you know, with strategies that are designed to engage them and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's one of the, the, the biggest things. In our schooling context, that's, that, that's actually the journey um, that we're on at the moment is, 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 is trying to figure out, um, you know, some of our Māori students have grown up in the culture. They've, they've had te reo Māori, the Māori language is their first language. Um, and then for whatever reason have chosen to um, explore mainstream schooling when they get to, to us in high school. And so that's one side of the spectrum, boys who are very closely, um, uh, who very closely identify with their Māori identity. And then on the other side, you have boys that are a couple generation um, displaced from their Māori culture, if you like, um, would like to, um, to identify a little closer. Um, and, and, and so how do you cater for all those boys on the spectrum, I suppose, is one of the, one of the biggest challenges that we face. I think um, mainstream New Zealand has become a lot more aware of what it means to be by culture, but also there's been a lot of, a lot of academic research, a lot of academic research that, is, that has um, led to the creation of a bicultural teaching pedagogy. See more at primary schools than secondary schools, but um, as, a man, as you've said, the mandate by the New Zealand government there's always been a strong push for schools, all schools, to recognise the biculturalness of who we are here in New Zealand, and that is including um, ensuring that Māori 
as part of the equation and not just a side appendix. So, it, it, I suppose the the big thing that we are pushing at the moment, and it's a new initiative. We've got the ministry and um, Aero, our educational review office, and and um, tribal groups. So in 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 New Zealand, the Maori people um, are are split up into different tribal groups, and and their interests are for the tribe before they're for Maori, and then for the wider country. If you can understand what I'm saying, um, and so different tribal groups have different entities that try to uh, promote better well-being and 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 push forward aspirations and so on. So all these groups, tribal groups, ministry, um, and uh, the Educational Review Office talk about this thing called cultural responsiveness. How can we respond to the cultural needs of Māori? But our school's been a little bit uh, bold and we're, we're sort of moving away from that because responding to the cultural needs of our Māori students means that the Māori culture is important to Māori students and their needs only it sort of infers that i know that's not the intent of it but that's the um that's the approach that it encourages and so we're we're, we're changing the way that we look at um our commitment to our maori students and their cultural needs and we're calling it bicultural empowerment and so by doing that you're really authenticating the importance of maori culture not just for maori but for the entire nation um, by empowering um, greater pride in our bicultural uh, heritage. Um, we hope that we'll be able to reach a wider range of, of Māori boys who are on different um, sides of the spectrum of how closely they identify with their Māori culture. Um, and, and, and at the same time, we're, we're actually empowering those students that aren't Māori with the idea that um, Māori identity is important to the nation and then they can find some sense of um, relating to that um, identity and authenticating it and not just thinking of the Māori stuff being the thing for the Māori people in the Māori corner. Um, and that's something that we've strengthened recently at our school. We've we've had a lot of initiatives designed for the Māori boys in the Māori corner who closely identify um, with their Māori identity. And so this is the new part of our journey. We've um, we're now sort of stretching beyond just catering for or, or just um, employing this idea of cultural responsiveness. We're, we're, we're exploring beyond that now and, and, and looking to bicultural empowerment. Next, I asked both Johnny and Toti to reflect on how they have approached inclusivity work in their schools. Johnny starts by mentioning the success of marginalised boys. Similar to what Randall Kennedy shared in part one of this podcast, Maori boys have often not been given the opportunity to be academically successful, something Westlake and Hamilton boys are working hard at changing. Traditional boys' schools um, have not been places where Maori succeed. Um, and, and certain areas, yes, in sports, of course, very, very much so. You look at a number of our, of our big traditional boys' schools in Auckland, I can guarantee you that um, the captains of their first 15 teams would either be Pacific or Māori. So in that aspect, yes, but in the, the aspect of accepting these young Māori men as Māori 
to be included in the teaching and learning pedagogies of the school. I think we're succeeding here at Westlake is because that, that it has been a vision driven by by senior leadership, especially but especially our our, our um, principal, but also that we we have firm guidelines which guide us and also and and that myself as a Māori educator we I've been in this boat before so it's it's nothing new so what I'm doing along with our principal is, is ensuring that um, strategies in place that key relationships are formed which does help have an impact on the learning of our boys. Toti focuses on the importance of a whole school authentic commitment to inclusivity work and drawing boys in from the margins. Well, firstly, I must say that our school is very um, accepting of how the importance of um, this idea of bicultural empowerment. It's, it's, it's a new idea, so it, it's, it is going to take a bit of time for um, some people to wrap their minds around it. But um, with with just judging by the participation um, and the effort from our school staff that goes into um, adopting all these new ideas, it's it's quite obvious that in our school that there's some good buy-in by staff. But obviously, being a traditional boys' school, high focus on discipline, so on and so forth, um, there's that sort of stigma that comes comes with us that uh, perhaps. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're too mainstream to be able to adopt ideas that involve things like um, bicultural empowerment and, and so on. So, so that is, is the greater start, is that we, we have a staff that are willing and that are, that are buying into to, to the idea. Um, but I suppose that the, the, the greatest challenge that we have is, you know, like we said, we are sort of going out on a limb by trying to, trying to lead the way with this new idea. So there isn't, there aren't any resources or examples out there um, where where this idea of bicultural empowerment um, has been fully adopted. So, so we're working our way way through that. But but I suppose the the, the empowering idea comes from a, a couple um, basic perceptions, and that the first one is that we don't want to be seen as tokenistic. So you know, little ideas of you know. We could put the periodic table in the Māori language and post that on the wall, but it's a tokenistic gesture to trying to be inclusive. The reason why we use the term bicultural empowerment is when a teacher does that, posts, for example, the periodic table in the Māori language on the wall, is that going to empower a Māori student to feel more proud about their identity? And is that going to empower the rest of the students in the class that Māori identity is important to the nation? And you know, anyone with a with with a bit of common sense would probably um, favour the side of probably probably not. Johnny agreed that authenticity is key. Yes, yes, and 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 that's probably the key thing: the word authentic, the word authentic, the word genuine, the words the words authentic, genuine, sincere are probably the most important words that we have. Um, the concept of bicultural empowerment just encourages teachers to be really reflective on on how their strategies are actually empowering um, students' sense of self-worth through identity, either as a Māori or as a, as a bicultural nation. Um, and and, and that, is, that is challenging. Um, 
but and 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 I suppose the most challenging thing about it is teachers are very busy people trying to plan for or the usual mandate matters of what it takes to be a teacher, but these these sorts of things are very um, context focused. So, for example, a strategy in an English class is going to be very different from a strategy in a PE class, which will be different again to a strategy in a music class or something like that. So, about coming up with meaningful initiatives that um, are perceived as authentic, um, and like like anything, perceptions vary between people. Um, and they change over time. So it's, it's, it's a constant journey. There's no end point. It's, a, it's, a, it's about changing mindsets and um, always uh, reflecting to be better than you were before. Next, I asked Johnny and Toti to reflect on some of the principles that boys' schools can use to guide their work with boys on the margins. Much of what they shared resonates with what our guests in part one also shared. Ensuring the key Māori values are visible in the school, which which has been, and that key Māori processes are part of what the school does, which means there's a genuine sincerity about what we do. If it was tokenism or tokenistic, then it wouldn't last and wouldn't survive, it, it, because Māori would not accept that. But also, it just it, it wouldn't feel right. So we're lucky enough that we have a, a strong enough. Um, base of staff and personnel at the school who are very strong in things Māori, but also we have been able to create some very strong relationships with our principal, but also with whānau, which are, which are family. And so for us, the triangulation of school, teacher, pupil and whānau is quite important as it's, you know, research has pro- proven that the intervention of whānau as well as teachers, the acceleration of success, the rate of, the rate of success is, is just, just doubles. I think the idea of empowerment is underestimated, if you like. Um, you know, by, by focusing on words like culturally responsive or even culturally um, inclusive, um, that it, there's, there's a big difference between including um, people and empowering people. Um, it's just, it, it, I suppose the intent's the same, but the focus is different. And so I'd, I'd focus more on empowering pride and self identity and, and, and um, self worth. And um, if we can do that in our schools um, and have that transfer over to society, I think we'll, we'll find more empathy in our communities, um, greater understandings, and, and a greater willingness for everyone to work, work uh, together. Um, which will hopefully um, detour some of those um, negative stereotypes and um, get us working better together as a, as a human race and um, as one for the betterment of everyone. In closing our conversation, both Toti and Johnny highlighted that this work is just as important for the boys in our communities who are not on the margins. Oh, very, very important. I mean... Uh, the example is that I have a lot of not a lot of non-Māori taking my subject. So I'm head of Māori, so I'm head of the Māori language here at, at Westlake. But I, I have a lot of non-Māori take Māori because there's a genuine interest of what it's like to be um, a New Zealander because we know that that being to be New Zealander is to also have some knowledge around the Māori language, Māori cultural protocols. And it seems that's what, and that's a lot of our non-Māori boys are, are into that. 
you know, another, another benefit of um, non-Māori um, boys learning a little bit more about Māori culture and um, empowering with that, that sort of sense of bicultural identity. Um, from that comes a lot more empathy towards, um, you know, uh, modern-day um, socio-political and socio-economic issues. Um, because a lot of the, um, the achievement of our coloured boys all over the world, and, and, and particularly our Māori boys here in New Zealand, isn't that, that the reason why they're underachieving or, or um, overrepresented in negative stats isn't because of their cultural identity as Māori. It's because of the socio-economic um, predicament they're in, um, which, which derives from being Māori and colonised and all the rest of it. So um, that's another really important thing for, for people to understand. And so by instilling a greater sense of bicultural pride in the boys that come through our school, we hope that they're a little bit more reflective of um, the, you know, the historical issues that have led to present day. And then when these issues do face in the media, um, there's a there's a bit more empathy towards um, things and a bit more understanding and a, and a greater sense of let's work to, to, together to um, see these issues remedied. Before introducing our next guest, some more voice note feedback from you, our listeners, in response to part one. After listening to part one of the Boys of Colour podcast, a couple of things that really did stand out to me or connected with me or made me really pause were uh, two main concepts. The first one was the idea that a boy of color has to shed a part of themselves every time they walk through the front door of the school. And the idea of them madly trying to put their uniform on on the bus to get to school and then to get rid of it when they return to their home community. Uh, It is something that we've talked about at our school and um, it really hits home when you hear the voices of the boys. We need to take context into consideration. In the States, many of the boys are in a minority group, whereas in South Africa, we have a situation, for example, in our school, where 50% of the boys are of colour and 50% of white. It's a Western ethos and Eurocentric traditions um, predominate. In November 2019, St Albans School in Washington, D.C., in collaboration with Gilman School and Baltimore Collegiate School for Boys, hosted the first of what we hope will become regular events on the IBSC conference calendar. The Reaching, Teaching and Succeeding with Boys of Colour conference opened the door to much challenge and debate for the delegates assembled there. These meaningful conversations have spilled over and sparked dialogue in many corners of the coalition. Here's a quick voice note from a boys' school colleague who attended this event. I had the privilege of attending the Reaching and Teaching Boys of Color conference in D.C. Um, Something that resonated with me was hearing Dr. Nelson speak on how relational teaching strategies have particular applicability to teaching boys of color. When I think about the boys of color at my school, I notice that while they may be frustrated when white peers are careless or are um, insensitive, they are sincerely disappointed when they feel their teachers don't intervene or don't understand them when they've been marginalized 
No matter how a teacher identifies racially, I think it's important that teachers understand the cognitive and emotional burdens boys of color have to bear when they come to our schools,、um, especially if these schools are predominantly white institutions. These、uh, relational strategies work for boys. We know that.、Um, imagine how much more powerful they can be for boys of color. Switching continents to North America, I managed to catch up with Sherry Russia. Dean of Students at St Albans School in Washington D.C., to ask her about the importance of this conversation and the resultant hard work that schools need to do. I started by asking Sherry about the conference St Albans School hosted last year and why, in particular, it was an important event for them. Jack Pinnell had、um, and I had been talking at many of the IBSC gatherings about our interest in in organizing a conference like this, and we were. So happy to、um, be able to bring it to fruition. the The idea really behind it was that independent schools like ours, and they're all they come in all kinds of different ilks, but they have a long tradition of having been、um, serving a more of an elite group or a selected group, and and almost by definition, many of these schools、um, have not felt like a place、uh, where Uh, I think a boy of color could see himself simply because there wasn't the long tradition of seeing himself there, and I think many of these schools have also noticed. We certainly have that. Too often, that doesn't mean that it's frequent, but too often,、uh, boys of color who, by all measures, are quite intelligent and should succeed, don't succeed as they should in our institutions, and. Wanting to dive in and think about、uh, what we can do in our schools to make them places that are、um, truly diverse in spirit and welcoming to everyone, and where everyone finds a place, a voice, and a, and a safe place to grow, and、um, and and that was really the the motive behind thinking about this and pulling together experts to. To and share our own ideas of what what are we doing? What are the various approaches? And there are many, and every school is a bit different. But ways in which we can be especially attuned to the needs and feelings of boys of color. Sherry continued by sharing what the takeaways from this event were. Well, I think first of all, I think that we have、um, there's not a uniform notion of. What should be done, and that's good because out of that discussion and sometimes even argument, I think will come the best ideas. With the conference, the what was wonderful, I think, about the conference is that you gathered folks who are thinking deeply about this.、Uh, Dr. Kennedy was able to give us a a very long view, a long perspective, which is important. We need to pull ourselves a bit out of the the now and the day. And he was able to speak to, and sometimes in a, in a very provocative way, speak to how one balances、um, uh, encouraging resilience in boys and also creating a safe space, and that was wonderful.、Uh, Dr. Nelson spoke to us about very poignantly about a loss of、um, childhood in the United States for boys of color, how they are. Seen as older, how they are forced into a sense of adulthood societally, 
I think one of the things that we all came away with was realizing, you know, societally, there are huge challenge for young men of color. And I wouldn't say that's limited to the United States. That's all over. So how do we as schools, in some ways, you're countercultural. How do you as a school create an environment and a space that challenges what is what is out there beyond the school to give the boys this chance to really be themselves and grow? Um, you know, I think in practical terms, I realize um, that if I were to do that conference again, the, there is so much uh, difference of opinion and healthy difference of opinion. I wish we had planned more time just for talk and exchange of ideas because uh, it's, it was robust when it happened. Um, and, and we all walked away. People stayed at the final cocktail hour even for a long time because it's something that we all feel very passionate about. And we all have boys, we can think of boys' names, particular boys, and say, you know, wow, and that, and I, and I feel like we didn't, I didn't we serve him as well, um, maybe even haunted by some of, of those who didn't feel it went as well for them as it should have. So I think that it's in a, it's in a really vibrant place. And I'm thrilled that the conversation is picking up and continuing as we think about truly that challenge of how, how do we, how do we buck in some ways many of the pressures from outside that the boys are facing societally and create a sense of strength within our own schools. Sherry went on to share some insightful thoughts about the importance of this work that focuses on reaching, teaching, and succeeding with boys of color. You know, I, th- I think this is crucial, and I'm, I'm frankly very, very proud um, that IBSC is is moving so deeply into this because we we care a lot, obviously, as an organization, to think about boys and development of boys. And boys are facing, as we know, many challenges right now about sense of masculinity, about um, their role in society. And I think if you take all of those, those are exacerbated for boys of color. Um, You can say, well, times two, times three, I think the issues of um, sexuality, the issues of identity uh, for, for boys of color, are have layers and complications um, way beyond what they have for the boys who aren't of color. So um, I think if we want to if we want to do right by boys um, writ large, and we do, this is um, this goes right to the heart of the challenges that face young men trying to become good men, and um, and how we help them do that. And part of that is is creating these spaces and allowing boys to really live into themselves. And I think that that's what this work is really about. Next, we were privileged to speak to Dr. Garth Shaw, principal of Dale College in South Africa. Dr. Shaw shared his doctoral research with delegates at the recent Restoring Hope African Regional Conference held at St. Andrews School in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Some silver bullet tips emerged from Garth's research that help empower teachers and school leaders to think more sensitively about how they engage their disadvantaged context learners more broadly. Before Garth shares the insights from his research, however, I asked him to contextualize the work with which he has been busy for the last five or six years. My research started out as, um, well, basically became about um, studying a model where, where the replication of practices 
um, took place in, in a high school setting um, where a, a very privileged middle-class school was asked to facilitate the startup of a, of a new school. But what really made it interesting was that that new school was strategically and from the outset designed to serve um, kids from, from disadvantaged contexts, so, so poor and, and, and lower middle-class learners. Um, so two very different socioeconomic contexts being served. And, and my research didn't start out about it, but it became about how the replication of practices from a middle-class context into a working-class context uh, could not be just done straightforward like that. They, you know, um, there had to be adjustment of the practices. Now, everybody involved in the project knew that, that, that you couldn't just create a carbon copy, you, you couldn't just clone it. But what, what is interesting for me, and, and you know, my research really highlighted this, is that, is that while everybody knew that the two schools served different contexts and needed to be different, there was no plan, there was no blueprint, there was no um, thinking ahead of how is this new school going to be different um, it was just on, here's a good model, here's a good school which works well, produces good results, let's replicate that way of doing, and then in time it can adjust. And, um, and, and what my research has found is that that adjustment um, was tougher to achieve than the school planting team initially thought. The school went well. I mean, for the first three years, this replication of practice was really efficient and really good and gave, gave the new school a, a foundation from which to work. But what, what was interesting is kind of, kind of year three, four, five, six, um, some significant tensions developed. And, and what was interesting was how tensions developed between the, the post-level one teachers. I, I talk about the teachers at the coalface, you know, in, in the classroom, engaging with the kids um, and, and the management team. And the management team... You know, six people sitting around a management table, um, idealistically thinking about how the school should work. Now, sure, there were teachers and they were in classrooms as well, um, but, but a significant disjoint developed between the post-level one teachers and the members of the management team, um, with the post-level one teacher saying, management, it's not working. This, this replication of the way of doing is not working. You've got to hear us. And management kind of had this mindset of, you've just got to try harder. You've got to keep doing it, or we're not doing it well enough yet. And, and for me, that's a huge... Um, huge lesson to be learned out of that is that, is that management, and, and this is one of the silver bullets, is management, you've got to be contextually sensitive. You've got to be eyes wide open, looking at your context, listening to the people at the coalface on the ground, the people who, and, and significant, the people who come from the context of the learners, the people who have straddled that gap, who, who've come out of the townships, if we talk in South African context, who, who understand township culture, who understand the challenges of the learners, and are now sitting in your staff room. I would urge you to listen closely to the practical insights Garth shares for reaching teaching and succeeding with marginalized students. If we dig into the teaching and how and how teaching, you know, what 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 are some of the silver bullets for for teaching when you when you've got disadvantaged context kids in your class and and you know certainly in South Africa we've got diverse contexts. Um, you've got you've got a very diverse class where you've got wealthy wealthy kids and you've also got you know kids coming from really poor backgrounds. Um, We've also got the challenge in South Africa where very few of the poor schools are producing quality results. And so there is this tendency to look to the middle-class schools and say, hey, we need to do what the middle-class schools are doing. And, um, and the findings certainly um, echoed by my research is you can't do that. You've got, to, you've got to have a differentiated way of doing to get to the needs of disadvantaged context kids. Um, so six, six standout silver bullets came out of my research, and, and, and they can be pretty broad. Um, you know, for each subject, you might go more closer in and, and, and get, some, get some more fine detailed silver bullets. But um, in generally, 
um, we found the following for, for, for teaching, is that, is that teachers needed to constantly revisit previous foundations, more so than for, than for middle-class learners. When you're working with disadvantaged context learners, the teachers had to constantly lay foundations again. You, you, you kind of had to do that while you were building on the new work. And, um, and for me, that's significant. You know, um, are you planning in your syllabus to come back and do a week's revision before the exams? Are you planning to do two days of, of revision before the test? Um, when you do a new section of work, can you, can you spend half a lesson going over the previous year's work which covered this section uh, to remind the kids of it? Um, you know, you can't just assume that these kids are going to go home and dig out their grade 11 books and, um, and, and go over it again when you start with the grade 12 stuff. Second silver bullet um, was, was that teachers found the need to build confidence in their learners. Um, I, I speak a lot about brittle shells. You know, the, the, the kids coming from these disadvantaged contexts are resilient. They, they deal with a lot. You know, if I think of my sheltered upbringing as a privileged white South African, um, the challenges that some of the kids are facing, you know, public transport, living far from the school, traveling in and out, having to deal with, with challenges at home, um, chores at home, um, you know, even children head, you know, children headed households, whatever else. The, the challenges the kids are carrying are significant. They, they really are resilient. But what we found at that school was that, was that their shells were brittle. And when the wheels started to come off, they came off properly. And so, and so the teachers picked up on this and brought that into their classrooms and that in their lessons, they were, they were, they were more sensitive to grow confidence slowly. Um, you know, things like a worksheet being very well graded from easier problems to more challenging problems. Um, learning problems where, you, where you're kind of giving steps as you're going along and, and teaching kids methods rather than just chucking them in at the deep end and expecting them to be able to swim. And then linked to that is kind of a third point. I, I put it separately, but, um, but, but in, that, in that teaching needed to be very structured. Teachers, teachers needed to be very well prepared and they needed to know what they were trying to achieve in the lessons. Um, in terms of the kids, how did the kids see that? They, they, the teachers needed to draw the links for them, you know, to, to make it clear why is this important links to that and that links to that. Um, whereas, whereas certainly in my study, the, the, the feeling was that kids from, from more privileged homes are, are, are able to make those connections themselves. Fourth silver bullets that I, that I picked up on was that, um, was, that, was that relationships were really, really important. And, and, and this, this comes out in a management insight as well, in that, in that the, the teacher-learner relationships, there really needs to be those strong pedagogical relationships. Um, and teachers needed to draw on those relationships, both in terms of facilitating academic development and in terms of, um, of implementing discipline. Um, really important for teachers to know their kids, know them well, understand their socioeconomic context, understand their home environment, understand their challenges, understand, um, you know, their fears, um, where they want to go and, and what they need to achieve that. I, I said to teachers, you know, you've got 30 kids in your class. You can't necessarily have that relationship with all 30 kids. It would be great if you could. But who are the 10 that you desperately need to develop that kind of relationship with, or 20, or, or, or how many? Who do you have to carry strongly and work at developing that relationship with them? You know, make sure that you on the side of the sports field on a Saturday when they're playing, or, you know, have you got their parents' contact details on WhatsApp or whatever the story is? You know, be able to, be able to engage with them. Um, and, and it takes a bit of work, you know, gives up a bit of your personal space to develop these kind of relationships with the kids. But once you have those relationships, your job as a teacher becomes a whole bunch easier in terms of 
developing discipline in terms of, 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 of building those academic foundations and that sort of thing. First point, very similar link to that, is that, is, that, is that school needs to be fun. Learning needs to be fun. And, I mean, this is something that we need to think about. I've, I've, I've heard it said in schools, um, you know, the kids mustn't think that I'm here to entertain them. Um, well, you know, it's easy to say that when, you, when you've got kids in your class whose parents are forcing them to come to school, whose parents are affirming you and strengthening you and, are, and have got your back, so to say, you know, the, the, the parents are taking your side. But when the parents are less involved in a kid's education, when the parents have never visited the school and the child travels an hour by public transport to get there, that parent may be dropped out of school, didn't get a university degree or whatever, and, and you've got that child sitting in your class. You don't have the same push from the parents to, to invest or for, for the child to invest in his education. And, and so that, that pull, in a sense, from the teacher has to be that much stronger. So rather than working harder, I want to say as a school, guys, are your kids enjoying your school? Is it fun? Are you making sure that you're including um, – fun activities, you know, um, the value of the extramural program. I, you know, we often talk about this. I'm, I'm a big fan of the extramural program. But, but those kids are not voluntarily, willingly sitting in your maths class. But those kids in your rugby team are voluntarily, willingly sitting there. So, so if as a school you're not prioritizing cross-country, but yet or cross-country is something that your kids could do well at, you've got to include that because it, it creates a space where they can have a positive belonging, where they want to be involved in the school. And, um, and that positive relationship spills over into the classroom as well. If you teach six lessons a day, you can't make each of those six lessons a perfect lesson, but you've got to make at least one of them a perfect lesson. And then you've got to alternate which, which class is getting that perfect lesson. That, that your kids need to, to see you well prepared and, and doing something fun, bringing an experiment into class or, or some different media or, or role play, getting the kids involved or whatever. But, but if all of your lessons are the same monotonous, you're going to be losing the kids and it, and it becomes more challenging, especially with those kids who, who don't have the same push from home for the academics. And then, and then the last one, again, this is your stereotypical teacher, but, but there's got to be that genuine care. Teachers, teachers need to carry their learners with a genuine care. And it, it, it feels almost ridiculous saying this because it, it's, it's so in the definition of what a teacher is. But, but I mean, you get, you get different, different, different horses for courses, you know. And, um, and, and, and if, if, a teacher, if a teacher's cut out to work with, with, with disadvantaged context learners, they, they would typically be defined by you know, a real heartfelt, genuine care for their kids and where their kids are coming from, and which facilitates that relationship, which facilitates all these other things that I'm talking about. And yeah, as a, as, as a principal, I'm thinking, you know, what are, how, what are the ways that I can identify, you know, or, or nurture that care, that sense of care, that sense of belonging, you know? Um, what are the things that you can put in place to to get teachers to develop that care? You know, what what what, what are the videos that I should be showing them on empathy? You know, what, what activities can we be doing to, to, to help, you know, teachers be moved by the kids in their context and where they're coming from and, and, and where they're going in life? And, um, and if teachers can develop that, that care, many of them have it, and that's brilliant. Those, those, those teachers are like gold, and you want to, you want to, you want to um, praise them and, and, and nurture that. Before we head to Canada to speak with Crescent School's Sean DeZilva, another voice note from a listener in response to part one of this podcast. I really appreciate the IBSC tackling this very important topic. This episode galvanized for me the importance of being measured in our response to this challenge and remembering that at the center of this issue is recognizing everyone's humanity. 
by giving students, faculty, and parents opportunities to share safely and engage in dialogue, we give boys of color agency in their own experience. This opportunity to talk and be seen is paramount in creating a mutually beneficial path forward for our kids as well as our schools. Sean DeZilva, a teacher at Toronto Member School Crescent, shares their journey with regards to reaching, teaching and succeeding with boys of colour. So I, I guess the, the journey started off when we developed this diversity professional learning community uh, headed by the headmaster of our school. And it was a mixture of, of staff members, of faculty members. And this never was meant to be a conversation about, you know, boys of color. It started off about being how can we grow diversity pretty much at Crescent School as a whole. And then eventually we started taking shape of specific things, whether it was around gender, around sexuality, or around ethnicity and color. Um, and then from that grew this conversation about specifically um, black boys at Crescent and led to the development of something that we now call the BSA or the Black Students Association. And really the Black Students Association, while it is predominantly for black students, is meant to represent um, a lot of students and kids of difference at our school. Diversity among students is obviously something that I think a lot of private schools could work on, particularly in, in Canada. Um, and I think this group represents more or less uh, a, a group of change for the entire school. In the Black Students Association, um, they run their own events with the help of myself and, and co-chair the Diversity P uh, PLC by the name of uh, Shai Cohen, who's just as instrumental in helping develop all of these organizations as well. Um, there was this integration of, all right, this is a group that wants to be recognized, they want to be heard, they have voices that are usually voiceless, um, and let's actually act on things that they want to do. And that slowly started off by celebrating something like Black History Month, something that our school typically didn't do, at least on a month basis. It was maybe a day or an announcement in assembly, but having a whole month devoted to Black history ended up being more than just a celebration of amazing people that identify as Black around the world. It ended up being a conversation around what it's like to be a Black student at this school. Um, and that ended up being really awesome. And that eventually led to panels, um, which is, is kind of the heart of this conversation today. Sean elaborated on their idea of forming student panels to engage in conversation with faculty on some of the issues facing boys of color. So the student panels actually started off, um, our, our social workers at our school lead these things called PLDs or peer-led discussions. And it's pretty much, they clear all the teachers and staff members out of the room and it's just the students talking to other students. And it's very raw, it's very vulnerable. And we wanted to replicate this idea um, with staff. So first of all, what we did during Black History Month for the last two years, students that are members of the BSA will sit on stage with um, uh, someone asking questions, a moderator, um, and those questions get asked and they get answered and the students in the audience listen. And that's kind of the big thing that we want from all this is we just want people to listen. And so my, we, we thought, you know what, this is, works well with the students, let's take it to staff members. And let's take it to this entire, the, all the adults in the school are really the change makers here um, and they need to be more aware. Uh, so we, we asked the students of the BSA to actually, you know, see if they're comfortable being in front of the faculty and the staff members. So 
you know, <laughs> giving them very loose uh, questions, Bruce. We did, once again, similar to this podcast, we didn't want to make it uh, too formal. We wanted to make it organic. And the students were, were up to play ball with it. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the things that we did kind of as allies in, in, in this moment is we pretty much made it more than okay and more than comfortable to be uncomfortable in this moment. And that's kind of been one of my slogans from day one is we need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and when we had this panel with the staff, it was the staff sitting in, in front, uh, sitting um, on one side, and it was about five to six members of the Black Students Association sitting on, on the other. And it was pretty much, all right, faculty, you're going to listen to these students talk. And once again, there was a moderator up there, and the questions were very raw and very eye-opening. Um, I kind of asked some colleagues after the event, I said, what, what stood out for you? What were some moments that stood out for you? And um, to share some highlights with you, I guess, there was, and I, I identify, you know, for podcast listeners, I identify as a, as a person of color as well. I'm, my parents are Sri Lankan. Um, I went to a private school growing up. I was a brown kid in a predominantly white school here in Toronto, which is actually a fairly multicultural environment. Um, and a lot of the stories that they were saying resonated with me. And I, it made me feel, uh, it, it made me reflect on all the things that I didn't say. And these guys sharing their stories uh, certainly made me feel a type of familiarity and made other people feel um, sense of surprise. There was one student that shared the story of how when asked what he did this weekend uh, would essentially lie and say that he went to the cottage and why did he say that he went to the cottage because all of his friends at this same private school were going to cottages and i just found that so amazing because bruce i can't tell you the number of cottages i've been to <laughs> when i was a teenager and i've never been to a cottage and i just thought that that was so powerful there were stories about students having their hair touched and, and petted essentially and uh, the question of why that might be considered offensive and aggressive and what we call an unconscious bias. Um, there were stories about, one student shared the story about how the first interaction a white person has with a person of color is a very nerve-wracking interaction for the white person. And we, I found that so fascinating because what the student essentially says is that person tries to overcompensate for not wanting to be seen as presumptuous and this very this this overwhelming kindness and joy and and sense of uh, sense of happiness for meeting a person of difference is something that that student mentioned can be a little bit uncomfortable for that person of color um, it, it was just remarkable to hear some of these stories uh, kind of upsetting obviously where one student talked about how uh, a, a parent might have assumed that uh, this child was fatherless and he, and, or, or that he didn't have the right uh, equipment to get something done or even to get home properly. Um, the assumption, obviously, that because you are black, that you like hip hop music or that you play basketball when that's not the case at all. Um, sometimes we get in a, in a bubble, uh, whether it's at our school or any school, that this stuff doesn't exist. And I think what these boys did is they definitely peeled back a, a, a wound and said, nope, these things happen, and it's very raw, and it's very frequent, whether it's subtle or completely blatant. 
To close this episode, I asked Sean to share some of the principles he thinks are important for schools who are engaging in or want to engage in this work. First of all, we need to see color. Like We can't be the type of people that say, I don't see color. You do need to see color. You need to understand the differences. And one of the things that these students mentioned in these panels that I think is absolutely resonant is they don't need another teacher. I mean, it certainly helps if there's another teacher that identifies as a person of color. I think diversity in the staff members is a big thing. Um, and I think we could also say that seeing representation in an in in our own environment does a lot for us but they pretty much said you know what we don't need every teacher at the school to be black to actually have a conversation with them what we do need is teachers that have empathy and teachers that are willing to understand or show that they're willing to understand because then they feel more comfortable reaching out to that person um and, and you do that by in your classrooms having conversations around elements of let's say black history and black culture you open up your curriculum to having uh representation of more people in color if you open up the door to at least showing the representation in your curriculum that at least opens up the door for some sort of relation relationship of i'm making an effort to talk about different people and hopefully you see that there is a representation of different people in this material. Now, that's not the only answer to this. I think the harder work comes from educating your staff. Um, we did something at the beginning of this year where we had a diversity training, essentially, with, with, with um, someone that tried to highlight this idea of it's all about the impact, not the intent. If someone doesn't intend something, it doesn't take away the impact. And that resonated for a lot of staff members. And I think that goes a long way to building up this understanding and this empathy. And if we had a theme for this most recent uh, you know, Black History Month, the theme was really to listen. Um, the students, particularly now, with social media, with how engaged they are in their own communities, they are so tuned in and so engaged in how uh how different they might be or might not be and they're more than willing to have the conversation and i one thing that was said in part one of this podcast was this element of curiosity and this element of being curious is not the problem the problem is when you make the assumption off of your curiosity and we can't, as adults, we can't be afraid to ask questions. Rather than, uh, rather than starting a conversation of, do you play basketball? Maybe ask, what sports do you play? And then go from there. And I think how we frame these questions and how we frame our presumptions is a big step in developing a more well-rounded, all-encompassed um, community. And small things, Bruce, as well, like small things like celebrating uh, a Black History Month, celebrating International Women's Day, celebrating uh, South Asian uh, uh, Heritage Month, celebrating uh, um, uh, all the different all the different celebrations that we can have that might be ethnic or otherwise. That's important because it shows that you, as a school and you as a school community, are aware of these things. I am sure you would agree that there has been so much rich conversation in both part one and part two of this episode. On reflection, there are some things that stand out for me. Firstly, we have to listen to learn and listen to grow. The heart work is really important. 
Secondly, we have to be intentional about this work and it has to be an authentic commitment to change. Thirdly, for me, what stood out is that leadership is paramount and also that we simply have to give students a voice. Their agency drives this work. Fifthly, many of us have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable and we need to open our eyes to our unconscious biases. And the last thing that stood out for me is this, is that we have to be willing to challenge the accepted ways of being in our spaces. These are the things that stood out for me. We'd love to feature what stood out for you. Don't forget to send us your thoughts on a WhatsApp voice note. You can send these to plus two seven seven one eight nine one one eight nine eight or email a recording to Collins at the IBSC.org. Until our next conversation, when we talk with heads Tom Batty from Scotch College in Melbourne, Australia, and John Botty from the Browning School in New York City. Keep safe and well, especially in this challenging time.